0: You're listening to Inside Asia, and I'm your host, Steve Stein. We're back in Singapore, and it's that funny time of year where we find ourselves sandwiched between the Christmas season on the one end and Chinese New Year on the other. Over the course of my 30 years in Asia, I've come to appreciate this four-to-five-week in-between period as a time to reflect on all that has occurred and all that is yet to come. It includes huddling up with friends and colleagues and talking things through. More often than not, food is involved. Stuffed turkey or pork dumplings, it matters not. The holiday means food and lots of it, sometimes for weeks on end. My midriff is the only evidence on hand, but here's the point. Whether American or Chinese, French or Indonesian, we all imbibe in the culture of food and the delight it offers. Increasingly, however, the source of our favorite foods are less known to us. For most, plucking vegetables from the home garden or slaughtering the fatted calf are chores reminiscent of a bygone era. Grocery stores are the modern-day go-to, the source of most of our nutritional needs. But what exactly does that mean? Or more importantly, what, if anything, are we giving up by relying on middlemen and retailers to source the food we rely on? Here to talk about it is Sasha Conlon, founder and owner of Singapore-based Sasha's Fine Foods. She says rising consciousness, growing concerns around processed foods, and a simple, healthy desire for farm-fresh products are creating new opportunities for small business owners that can deliver. I asked Sasha to explain how and why she got into the business and whether Asia was experiencing the same level of food consciousness as in many parts of North America and Europe. I'm here with Sasha Conlon for Sasha's Fine Foods here in Singapore. Uh, Sasha, thanks for, so much for taking the time.
1: You're very welcome. It's great to be here.
0: We're going to have an interesting conversation about food. Uh, we all like food, but uh, there's also some challenges and issues with food. The food industry is starting to move us away from uh, the finer points of nutrition. And now you're looking and have been building a business in delivering even the finest and freshest foods to people in Singapore. Tell us how you got started.
1: I think When I moved here 10 years ago, I was very wary of the food I was buying because nobody seemed to know where it had come from or what was in it. So I was going to butchers, I was going to fishmongers, and I was asking them about their products, and they didn't know the countries that they were selling their produce from. Why was that a concern for you? I think I'd come from a culture in London where I knew where everything had come from, and I took great comfort in knowing where my steak had come from, which farm it had come from. I could look up how the cattle had been raised. I could see whether it was grass-fed beef. And I I think perhaps food safety is too strong a word, but that was certainly entering my mind when I came to Asia.
0: Are you born on a farm?
1: No, I'm actually not, and I'm a lawyer by background. I just love good food. So so what is that what typic, typically
0: Londoners do? Do they go and ask uh, their butcher and their fishmongers, where does this come from, or is that just you?
1: I think it's probably just me, mm. but there's definitely... because. London, even London is surrounded by farms. So people generally know where their food has come from. There's a a huge sustainable side to that. People want to support their local farmers. It's just this farmer's markets every weekend. It's it's part of the culture of being English is Mm. that you generally know which, at least which country and often which area of the country your food has come from. People may not really ask any questions beyond that but there is that culture in England because there are so there are so many farms
0: in many ways, uh, the idea of food and where food came from, it's interesting because in Asia, uh, it's just one generation from the land, from farms. Uh, in fact, even here in Singapore, you go around with taxi drivers who are in their 60s and 70s and they say, that's my kampong, that's where I grew up, uh, I raised chickens over here and my family had goats and you get the feeling that places that are now high rises and you know, housing developments and retail outlets were formerly fa- farms, compounds, places where people got their food from the land and it's changed with one, within in one generation you also get the feeling that while people have been really happy going to cold storage and their grocery stores for the last generation or 40 50 years there's a bit of a movement away to start to ask these questions why has it taken so long particularly for families that have been exposed directly to their food
1: i think it's a it's a generational thing i think the younger generation haven't haven't seen those farms and people that haven't left singapore they don't know what a farm looks like. Mm. So the millennials, the Gen Gen Zs, they don't know what farms look like. And what we're seeing with our customers is that the people, the younger generation in Singapore that have traveled or been to university overseas are coming back and saying, hang on a minute, what about our food? Where has it come from? Mm. And actually what we've seen in the last 18 months in Singapore is the government really starting to listen to that as well and take notice and realize that actually for the future of Singapore, they have to start producing their own food again. They can't keep importing everything they eat. That's
0: the issue of food security. Could you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's partly food security, but it's also, um, I think they're realizing that the new the new way of eating has got to be closer to nature and closer to how food is produced. because the big companies are stripping all of that away, and the questions that are being asked now, they can't answer. And sorry, the gov- I was just going to say, the government want to actually support this new way. And the only way they can do that is by helping people in Singapore build a structure. It could be a vertical farm, for example, where they can produce something locally. Is it your impression
0: that the government's responding to a rising demand for farm-fresh foods, or is it a response to growing concerns that the food industry is stripping out the nutrition and not giving people the healthy foods required, and therefore there's long-term health implications?
1: I actually think it's both. Mm. And, and I think that's great that it's both, mm. because both are as important as each other. Mm. What are vertical farms? So it's uh, because there's very little space in Singapore. Uh, they've had to be quite creative with the way they can uh, build their farm. So it's an indoor. It's a building, and you might get rocket or lettuce or strawberries or tomatoes built growing in these uh, vertical farms. And there's no soil, so these little plants are grown in test tubes with highly nutritious feed and. They're in sort of incubators, if you like, with kind of warm lights and very clever uh, lighting that turns on and off and mimics the daylight. And it means that Singapore can produce vegetables and fruit and hopefully other new products coming soon that will support the restaurants and ultimately the, the people at home here. In
0: many ways, it's just so consistent with what Singapore has done throughout the the years, creating a bit of a hub environment, uh, testing, experimenting, bringing in new technologies, uh, being able to kind of trial and then use that as a way to then export uh, these learnings to other markets and other places. How successful has it been so far in your estimation?
1: Well, I think, I think it's been successful. I, I'm, I've got a friend who started a vertical farm here about five years ago. He was one of the first. And they've just taken their technology and their structure to Thailand. So this was their testbed. And they are now flourishing here. And they're starting in Thailand. And I think Vietnam is their next, their next venture. It's
0: interesting in a place like this where you said many Singaporeans coming up through the system have never even been to a farm. Um, Do you think there might be a push where the government starts to encourage farming as opposed to being a lawyer or a doctor or something else? Could it be uh, an emancipation or or a revisitation to, you know, some of the great traditions of Southeast
1: Asia? I think they'll have to because uh, a couple of years ago, the government launched a scheme here of of opening up some land for farm for actual farming so not vertical indoor farms but actual farming as we know it and these are all being sort of nurtured at the moment and we're expecting we've already uh, talked to one of the the small companies that's taken a farm and we have pre-bought their lettuce which they're going to start growing which will be available in a couple of years but the government are, are so interested in this space and are investing a lot of time and money into this space that I think, they are going to have to support that with education. Otherwise, it will fall flat. Mm.
0: Until then, and like you say, it is burgeoning, um, there are still opportunities to source beautiful foods elsewhere in the region. You spend these days a lot of time in Bali and elsewhere. Tell us a little bit about your passion for identifying and sourcing and having those conversations with farmers and some of the reasons why you do that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I started the business um because I wanted to get closer to the farmers and the food. And so that really is my passion. Um, The frustration for me coming to Singapore was that I couldn't do that locally. Um, And so really the the closest place I could go was Western Australia, Uh, that's where I started. More recently, um, there's been some great activity in Bali, which you mentioned, and there's people there doing amazing things with food. Uh, but they have real problems getting that food out of Bali and into a bigger market. So um, that's one of the things we're looking at at the moment. With I have partnered up with a, a chap who lives in Bali, and we've created a new company called Sasha's Farms, and this is exactly what we're going to be doing. We're going to be working with these small producers and bringing their beautiful, carefully crafted natural products out of Bali and initially into Singapore to give them a platform Uh, to enable them to continue growing and producing the food in the right way without cutting corners, giving them a fair price, but then giving them access to a bigger market so that they can grow their small businesses. Of all
0: the farm communities across Asia, and there are millions of them, why Bali? Why have you landed there and what is going on in Bali, which is different than other parts of Southeast Asia?
1: Um, I mean, I don't I can't talk to Vietnam and Thailand and and other Southeast Asian countries in detail I know Bali quite well and I'm drawn to it because they have been ahead of the curve when it comes to sustainable Food production for as long as I've been in Asia Mm -hmm. over 10 years I don't know why I can't explain why it is but they are I go I look to Bali for trends And it's probably the only country uh, the only place in Southeast Asia where I do that
0: and what do you look for when you walk to a farm or you identify or somebody puts you on to somebody who's uh, Growing something special or creating something wonderful. What's your kind of back-of-the-pocket checklist?
1: Funnily enough, the first thing I look for is the personality of the person I'm talking to. How do you mean? I only like working with people I really like and I, I, I like to connect with people that care and you can tell quite quickly whether somebody genuinely cares about what they're doing or whether they're just trying to make a bit of money. How? I think it's a personal, it's an EQ thing. It's a personal, mm. I, I, it's hard to put into words. I've met so many people who have told me things over the phone. They've written the right things in an email and I land on their doorstep. And it just some things don't ring true. Mm. Or they start talking a lot about how big we can build this business and how much money we can make. And it's a gut feel. Um, I avoid people like that, like the plague, because I actually want to get beneath all of that and find those people that are just doing what they love and they're doing what their grandparents taught them and their grandparents' grandparents taught them. So
0: can you give us an example of somebody you've met recently, a farmer you work with in Bali, something about their story and what what uh, drew you to them and to their product?
1: Yeah, I'm, so I'm working at the moment with a, a An amazing guy and his wife who produce kombuchas for gut health and he started that business because his father developed a motor neuron disease and he was living in China, got the phone call from his mum who said your father's ill and so he jacked everything in, he came back with his Chinese wife to Bali and he learned everything he could about health and how he could help his father and he started to produce his own food and these gut health drinks Mm. And he helped prolong his father's life by, he thinks, 8 to 10 years. And his father sadly passed away, but he has just continued doing that. And he connects with the sort of the healthy community, hospitals, doctors. And he tries to nurture other people with the products that he pours his heart and soul into. And that that kind of story is what resonates with me.
0: So it's interesting that there's a component not of just Good eating and good food, but health and nutrition and life sustainability here. How much does that figure into the work you do and the type of products that you source?
1: It's massive for me. I don't sell anything that's not good for you. Um, yes, we sell meat. Uh, not everybody eats meat, and, and that's a personal choice, but the meat we sell is extremely good quality. It's mostly grass fed beef. Uh, I've been to the farms, I've seen the cows. I've seen where they graze. I've seen how they're raised. I've visited the abattoirs. I know how far they travel from the farms to the abattoirs. I, I vet the whole process from start to finish. And for me, a product tastes great if it's been produced properly. And I only want to nurture myself, my family, and all of my customers with foods that are gonna make them feel good. They're gonna taste good, and they're gonna make them feel good. So you won't find anything on our website that is unhealthy. Uh, You'll find anything from gut health drinks to coconut yogurts to grass-fed beef and amazing salmon.
0: Is there a process by which uh, small farms can um, qualify or be certified or authenticated uh, and and therefore um, almost a seal of approval? that would then be an assurance to you and others like you who are trying to bring good, healthy foods to market?
1: There are, and they vary all over the world. And, it, and it's it's quite tricky because you, you need to understand each one in, in each different country. So, you know, the, the bare minimum, I would expect a farm, for example, in the UK to have been approved by the RSPCA. And there's a red tractor scheme there. Then when it comes to fish, there are... Uh, multiple sustainability schemes and one of those the organization would have to have been registered by one of those. I think for me that's a starting point. Mm -hmm. I don't necessarily look for organic because a lot of the farm the farmers I work with they can't afford the organic certification and actually that doesn't it doesn't mean that much to me. It's more about um, it's more about how they are producing their food. It doesn't have to have the organic stamp. Organic actually means different things in different parts of the world anyway. So it's about understanding in the country you're working with what the certifications mean. So if someone says to me, I have a BAP certification, if I don't already know it, I need to go and check what that means and and how often they are visited and and whether their certificate is still valid. And that's, I guess, a starting point. And from there, I, I dig deeper.
0: Sasha, I have a healthy skepticism of any packaged good that says organic on it. Am I right to be cynical or suspicious?
1: Um, I think from some countries, um, you shouldn't be cynical. I think the EU, the US, Australia, they have very high standards. And actually, the organic stamp, you are getting organic. Mm. I think in Asia, the organic stamp doesn't mean anything. Mm. Um, I could start a farm in Malaysia next week and stamp organic on it. Right. Let's come
0: back to Singapore. Um, One of the opportunities we have to introduce new, farm-fresh, kind of farm-to-table foods is because the per capita income is so significantly higher compared to the rest of the region. It's one of the wealthiest cities in the world, and certainly in Asia. Therefore, there's a chance to build a business, uh, cater to people with the incomes, and allow them to eat in a more healthy fashion. How can you, or do you foresee a time when this is scalable in such a way where middle income or lower income could also have access to these kinds of foods?
1: I mean, that's what I would I would love. Our goal is not to target the people with the money in Singapore. We, we try and find, or I try and find food that is affordable to as many people as possible. One of my favorite customers is a, a little auntie. She buys one chicken a week, and it's a local chicken. It's not expensive. It's probably one of our more affordable products. And she buys one a week Mm. and she cooks for her whole family with that one chicken. For me, she is a VIP customer. Mm. Um, I think, yes, the food that we sell because of the way it's been produced, you, you will pay, often pay more for it because corners haven't been cut and it's real food. I think the way the world is going, the big processed machines out there, the, big, the the food that I call unreal food, it will start to decline. And the cost of real food will become more apparent. And you know, in Europe, I think the Europeans spend something like 60% of their salaries on food mm. because they understand the cost of real food and what it does, what it means for their health. I think that awareness will grow. And because of that, the business is scalable. So, so
0: health consciousness, is a move it's a movement or it's a niche it's a movement and you're you're saying that by indicatively looking to Europe or other markets that have made these buying decisions larger percentage of expendable income going to food versus other other sources and you think that that's just human nature that once people cotton on to this they'll be prepared to you know again invest more of their money and it's not always about the, the cheapest solution
1: it's an education And and I think it's a long road. I'd be be naive to say it's going to happen overnight. But it's an education. And I think what we discover from our customers who send us incredible emails um, is that when they taste the food, they can't go back. Mm. So they'll say to me, okay, I'm paying $3 more for a chicken, but I would rather do that than go back to what I was eating before.
0: You know, people like Jamie Oliver have attempted to introduce real food to school uh, cafeterias. And he started in California with the thinking that if California turns, the whole nation turns, which is probably right. And it was a failed experiment. And they discovered it wasn't so much the food they were offering because the kids were quite enthusiastic about it, it was the staff that simply wasn't prepared to put the time and effort into preparation. It's easier to take a big vat of frozen potatoes throw it in the deep fryer and you know move on it's a faster process than chopping preparing and sauteing vegetables is it, 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 that's my understanding are you concerned that you know our institutions in some large markets not to bang on about the us are simply simply aligned against the probability of real food coming back and playing a more important role
1: yeah i mean that that makes my heart bleed um to hear that because it's it doesn't surprise me um It's a really long road, but I think that something has to change because the health, you know, you look at the US and the disease and the health, and and I believe that most of that disease starts from diet. Mm. Something has to change because the governments can't keep funding the bills and the insurance companies. People can't afford the Medicare. People are getting sick because of what they're eating. So something has got, and I think it is starting to change. I just think it's a long road.
0: Well, you raise a really interesting point, which is the co- rising cost of health care uh, and, and this, this non-communicable diseases, uh, heart uh, canc- uh, uh, disease, cancers, diabetes, obesity, these are all um, factored into how we eat, how we live, how we exercise or don't exercise. You would think that governments, particularly, that are um, on the hook to fund uh, curative care would be more inclined to introduce and incentivize uh, the real food industry um, in order to counteract some of the negative consequences of processed foods. Is that happening in Asia, to the best of your knowledge? or Because I certainly do not see that happening in the U.S., where, frankly, that's where the biggest problem is right now.
1: I I don't think it is happening in the U.S. Sadly, I and mean, there's a lot of people trying to make it happen. Um, is it happening in Asia? I don't think so. But I think what was seeing certainly in Singapore is that the government are trying to produce more food locally, and that food is healthy food. Mm. And I think that's a good it's a good start. Mm. But there's 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 a very long way to go. Are they connecting in Singapore with the health issues? I don't think so. No, because I think they're a country that. Don't worry too much about that. Um, I think these issues are greater in the US and starting to trickle through into Europe. Particularly, I think the the onset of most disease um, is inflammation, and that comes from poor diet. Um, something has got to change in the UK. The NHS can't keep going the way they're going. Um, if if the disease isn't tackled from the bottom up, I don't I don't know where I don't know where we're going. Um, I just, unfortunately, you know, I listened to a few functional doctors and people in this space in the U.S. and, and Europe and, and in Asia, and they are all saying that they are coming up against a brick wall with the governments. Mm.
0: Yeah. Sasha, it's kind of a sad note on a happy business, mm-hmm. but uh, thank you for sharing your thoughts, and we wish you great success.
1: Thank you. It's been great to chat. Thank you.
0: That was my conversation with Sasha Conlon, founder and owner of Sasha's Fine Foods and Sasha's Farms. She's just one of thousands of small business owners that see problems and therefore opportunities in offering foods that aren't planted, harvested, processed and sold by the multi trillion dollar food industry. While it's true that compared to 50 years ago, a smaller percentage of household income is spent on food, there's more to this story. Mass industrialization of the food sector, creation of global supply chains, and the introduction of high-tech processing and packaging have combined to lower costs while extending shelf life and reducing waste. For consumers, that means a vast variety at lower prices. But what's good for the wallet isn't necessarily good for the body. A recent slew of studies reveals that highly processed foods that are typically higher in sugar, fats, and empty calories lead to the early onset of heart disease, obesity, high blood pressure, elevated cholesterol, cancer, and yes, even depression. Worse of all, the food industry knows it. And national food protection agencies from the U.S. to China aren't doing anything about it. Why? Because they make food affordable. It's a matter of economics. As long as food manufacturers can crank out a tasty, albeit unhealthy, product that people want to buy, there's nothing to prevent them from doing so. The poorest class are the hardest hit. The fast food industry is capitalized on it. In the U.S., the price point for a family-sized bucket of chicken, french fries, and a bevy of biscuits is less than what it would cost to go to the store, buy groceries, and prepare a meal. It's fast, too. You see the problem? You can call it clever marketing, but it smacks of predatory behavior to me. Not sure? Well, then take a look at the Pizza Hut dinner box for $8.99. This dinner, if you can call it that, comes with a single-top pizza, five breadsticks, marinara sauce for dipping, I assume, and ten cinnamon sticks. I guess that counts as a dessert. I'm sorry, but who thinks up this stuff? Someone's buying, so it must be good, right? But why am I talking about fast food deals in the U.S.? Because if it worked there, it can work here. And if you think the kings of processed food aren't targeting Asia's rising middle class, think again. Already there's an alarming rate of rising obesity in this part of the world, particularly among children. According to the UN Food and Agricultural Organization, the number of overweight children in the region rose 38% between 2000 and 2016. That's not only bad for children, it's bad for the economy. The Asia Development Bank points out that obesity links directly to poor health. That, in turn, puts a lien on healthcare spend. And that's something that many Asian countries just can't afford. Have I digressed? Maybe. But here's the point. If affordability is the only factor guiding food consumption, then say hello to the prospect of an ever-expanding Asia waistline. We talk on this podcast about how Asia has leapfrogged the West in so many ways. Telecom, infrastructure, digital payments, I can go on. The food industry and its relentless drive to create and sell non-food products at low prices is not your friend. Their assorted products might taste good, but so much of this stuff is just downright bad for you. Before I start to sound like your mother, consider this. While the average Asian diet still remains far healthier than its Western counterpart, now is the time to remain vigilant. Feed don't fatten your families. And guess what? There's hope. And it comes in the form of small agribusinesses like Sasha's. She and others are looking to make a dent in the food industry and offer a path back to real food and good nutrition. There's nothing wrong with affordability, but when given a choice, think healthy too. That's it for this week's episode of Inside Asia. I hope you've enjoyed the conversation. If you don't have time to listen to every episode but want to stay connected to the many ideas and themes presented by our guests, please subscribe to the Inside Asia newsletter. We track Asia in transition, and each week deliver new insights, point you to reliable sources, and showcase episodes on related topics. To subscribe, go to www.insideasiaadvisors.com, scroll to the bottom of the homepage, fill in your name and email, and start receiving our weekly update. Is there a topic we haven't covered? Let us know. To subscribe and download any or all of our episodes, visit Inside Asia at iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Or comment and rate the program on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Until next time, this is Steve Stein saying, coming from the outside on Inside Asia.